So uh, I try just about every year to read The Lord of the Rings. Um, and I'll apologize now because it probably means like heavy Lord of the Rings references and illustrations and all sorts of good stuff. But um, I'm, I'm just about done with the second book with Two Towers right now. And it's been an interesting read, right? Where typically, like in re past reads, uh, do you, guys, you guys know this story. Frodo and, and, and Smeagol, their interactions uh, have really never been my very favorite part. But this read, that's been like, like really sweet and good. And part of it is because the deep connection between Frodo and Smeagol, two of the ring bearers um, that are in some ways compelled very much by the same thing. They're compelled by the ring of power, um, but they're compelled in very different ways. Um, and we're gonna talk a little bit about being compelled this morning and what compels us. Um, but I was reading uh, Matthew over break and I came to this, uh, just coming out of um, Matthew 5, 6, 7, sitting in, in 8 and 9 for a while, but, but chapter 9, and that's where we're going to sit, is chapter 9, if you are so inclined um, to follow along. But chapter 9 kind of hit in a really interesting way, and we're going to look at it this morning. Uh, before we do, let's just take a moment and be reminded that um, we have a God who speaks to us and wants us to know that he loves us and holds us dear. So let's take a moment and ask him, trusting and believing that he actually has words for us this morning, that he might speak the words that we need to hear right now. Uh, Father, you are gracious and kind, and we ask that you will please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, the power of your word, speak to our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 9 starts off with Jesus getting into a boat and crossing over uh, the Sea of Galilee. He comes to his own city and they brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a stretcher. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man who was paralyzed, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. So I was thinking about this over break and I was kind of asking the question, what would be our response if the story ended right there? If that was it. If it was, they brought to him a paralyzed man, so you have a group of friends who are carrying their paralyzed friend on a stretcher, and Jesus sees them come, and he sees their faith. Faith of the man, the paralyzed man, the faith of the friends carrying, and, and they lay him down, and he says, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And I wondered how many of us would be sort of discontent if the story ended right there. If that was it. There's no healing, no getting up and walking. If that was just the end, would that be enough? And it made me think like, okay, wait, he's just forgiven the man's sin. Why in my own heart am I kind of waiting for the next step? Why am I waiting for like, the real miracle to come. Well, <clears throat> it made me uh, kind of ask this further question we're going to delve into. Um, but it was, well, if forgiveness of sin isn't that amazing, or it doesn't like sit as, as the thing that's at the heart there, what is it that, that compels my heart? Like, 
what's going on here? So anyway, um, keep going. Jesus does not use people to make theological points. But he does, in the way that he ministers to people, make theological points and draw pictures for us. And it's interesting, with this man, um, I think that if the story were to stop there, we should be overwhelmed and we should be deeply joyed. We don't know what his life was like, but we do know that he was paralyzed. We don't know how paralyzed he was, what motion, what movement he had, but he had an opportunity to sit with his heart and he knew himself. And when Jesus looks at him and says, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. You are cleansed, you are forgiven, and you are made right with God. And the man, we don't know, but was he, was that the thing that he most wanted in his life? You know, I think we take the, the, we assume that he wanted to walk because he's paralyzed, and that's what they assumed was going to happen, that Jesus was going to heal them. But Jesus speaks to the very depth of who he is as a sinful human being. And he says, take heart, take courage. I'm forgiving you, and you are right and clean before God now. And I've got to think that that was the most amazing miracle that could have happened. It was the thing that should set us back and go, oh my word, the goodness and the glory of God. Well, there are other people there, scribes and Pharisees. Um, and the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. He's claiming to do only that thing which God can do. But they're not awestruck. They're saying it with contempt, contempt in their hearts for what Jesus has just said. And Jesus is very clear. What they're saying is actually evil. They're attributing the evil of blasphemy to God himself. And Jesus, he perceives their thoughts. He says, why are you thinking such evil things? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralyzed man, get up, pick up your stretcher and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and they glorified God who had given such authority to men um, the paralytic gets up and walks home. The scribes are indignant, and the crowds, the crowds are amazed. And the man has just been given, and everyone there has seen a physical picture of what has taken internally. He's been freed. And up he goes, and he walks. And so my question, and it may seem kind of roundabout um, as I'm speaking it, but my question was, what is it that compels a person to follow the way of Jesus? What is it that compels you to faithfulness in Christ? You're steeped in Christian culture. Most of you go to church every single week. Many of you grew up in Christian families. But I know, and you know, that following the way of Jesus is not what all of us do. That for some of us, it's part of, we, we sit in a Christian culture and we're used to the Christian stuff, but we know that our hearts are not on that path of walking with Christ, that we value other things, that we put our, our own freedom, our own desires above that which Christ would have for us, that we're not necessarily daily laying our lives down and picking up the cross of Christ and following. And I started asking, so what is it? What compels a person to the Jesus way? 
What compels a person to love the Word of God? What compels a person and motivates a person to want to follow Jesus more than follow self? What is it? Like, what is it? Because we sit in it. You guys are in chapel. You're at a Christian college. Some of you are called to vocational ministry. We talk about big C, little c. We talk about the preeminence of Christ in all things. But what is it that makes us and compels us to the way of Jesus? And it's not truth, right? It's not truth because you can see truth and choose not to follow truth. Demons knew truth of who Christ was. I think something else has to happen. What is that thing? Well, keep moving into Matthew chapter 9 because we're going to find our answer, I think, sitting here. Um, But it's actually quite simple. In order to truly be compelled to the Jesus way, we have to truly believe that it is better than any other way. Kind of bottom line. You have to believe that obedience to Jesus is actually better than obedience to self. You have to be convinced in the depths of your heart that laying down your life is actually better than living for self. Is that the kind of faith that we have, but is that what Jesus also offers us, the best thing? Well, that forgiveness of sin that Jesus offered to that paralytic. I think if we look at what happens in Matthew chapter 9, it draws a little more um, fulfillment around that. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax collector's office, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and began dining with Jesus and his disciples. And then you have this interaction again, right? You had that contempt again. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus' disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus heard it, and he said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. See, the Pharisees expected that the Messiah would come and he would crush sinners, and he would stand with the righteous. That is not Jesus. Jesus says, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've come for people who actually need me. I've come for the sick people. And then he says to the Pharisees this great thing. He says, now go and learn what this means. It's a a rabbinic phrase that actually means, now go and study some more. Right? It's kind of beautiful. It's it's that nice, underhanded Jesus. Um, He says, I desire compassion rather than sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He says, look, I've come to set sick people free, not to tell sick people that they're not sick. That's what I've come to do. And that passage, uh, the the, I desire compassion rather than sacrifice, it's, it's from Hosea 6. And in the book of Hosea, all through the book, you have those who claim faithfulness and claim righteousness, who are worshiping at the temple on a daily and regular basis, but have completely lost the heart of God. It's all shell 
and no heart. And Jesus makes it very clear that by their very questions, that's what the Pharisees are stepping into. They don't have compassion on the sinners, on the people that Jesus came to actually set free. So we circle back to our paralytic at the beginning. When he tells the paralytic, your son, your sins are forgiven, he's set a context for the type of ministry that he's doing and for the type of miracle that he's doing. Matthew chapter 8 is full of miracles that Jesus does. And they are all about setting people free. He heals a paralyzed man. He sets him free from his physical body, from that physical cage that he had been living in. He heals a leper. He sets him free from disease and shame. He heals a servant that was paralyzed and scripture says is living in torment. He sets him free from the pain and sets him free from a body that doesn't work. He heals a simple fever, showing that he actually cares about setting us free from even the small things that plague us. And then he frees people from demons that are possessing them. Scripture says that Jesus takes our illness and carries away our diseases. In Isaiah, it's a fulfillment of one of those great prophecies. He tells us exactly what kind of artist he is and what kind of paint he's painting with. And he is painting with love and compassion and a desire for us to be free from that which holds us in bondage. So what compels us to the way of Jesus? We have to believe that it is better than any other way. That hard obedience is actually better than fleshly gratification. We have to believe that long game peace of soul is actually better than immediate emotional tickling. I like that. That being set free is actually better than the most comfortable and known bondage. And it is so very practical, right? It is our every day. What we choose to do and not do, where we allow our hearts to go, and our eyes, our minds to go. We have to believe that the way of Jesus is actually the better way. And the thing is, I know this. I can tell you that the Jesus way is the better way. You can be immersed in it and see it and even believe it. You can believe that it is true, but it requires something more. Psalm 34 is kind of fantastic, um, and I've always loved that God does this. Psalm 34 invites us, you guys know this, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And it's really important here to, it doesn't just say, come and see that the Lord is good. It says, come and taste. And when you taste, you will see that the Lord is good. So think about that, that picture. It's actually, it's so, it's so important and so germane to who we are as human beings. Say you've got, I was thinking about Champy's chicken when I wrote this, so we're gonna talk about Champy's. But say you've got a, a piece of Champy's fried chicken in front of you, and you look at it, and you see, oh, that looks delicious. And you're like, I actually know, believe that that is delicious. Why do you eat it? You know what it tastes like. It tastes fantastic. 
You may even remember the sort of viscosity that it creates in your mouth. You know the grease. But the reason you do it is because when you taste it, you truly experience it. That's when you can actually say you know that it is amazing. And it is that way with the goodness of God. You can be steeped in it, surrounded by it, see it and believe, and, and, and believe it's true, but until you experience it, you cannot claim it. The Christian life is very much like a feast. You sit at a table and the goodness of God is before you, but you actually have to eat it, taste it, to know that it's good. There's a part in um, The Two Towers where uh, Frodo and Sam and Smeagol uh, are climbing up through Sirith Ungal. It's up into, they're up, going up into the mountains on this mountain pass on the way to Mordor, right? And they've just passed by Minas Morgul, which is the place where the Ringwraiths, the city of the Ringwraiths, and it's a place that's so evil and horribly wicked that even the flowers on the ground cast off the smell of rotting flesh. And there's this moment where um, this huge, like, sort of cacophonous sound happens, lightning shoots up, and the gates open at Minas Morgul. And out comes the king of the wraiths. And he's dressed in all black, sitting on this massive horse, and there's a massive army behind him. He's got a helm on his head. He's the one that had stabbed Frodo earlier in the, in the story. And as he's riding out, he stops. And the whole army stops behind him. And he can feel the power of the ring in his valley, in the Morgul Valley. So he stops. And the text says that he looks around. And then Frodo can feel the pull of the ring. He can feel his body wanting to put it on. And then Tolkien writes that his arm just starts to rise up towards it without Frodo doing it at all. And Frodo realizes what is happening and he watches it. With his hand, he grasps the file of Galadriel. And he's reminded of all of the good he doesn't feel the power anymore. The ring wraith starts to drive off. He's compelled by that which he knows because he has been resisting the ring over and over and over. He hears and knows the words of Gandalf and Galadriel and Aragorn in his head. He grabs the file because he knows that it is good. Now Smeagol, on the other hand, Smeagol, just wants the ring. That's what he's seeking after. He wants it, and he's gonna try to trick him, and he's gonna try to take it, and Frodo's gonna destroy it. He knows what his flesh calls to do, but he knows what is good and best. He knows the better way because he's been tasting and experiencing the better way. Our paralytic, he acted in faith, he tasted God's goodness. They came before in faith that Jesus was going to do something. He was forgiven of his sins and he was healed. His friends who acted in faith tasted God's goodness. And Jesus invites us to come and do the same. Friends, don't be satisfied to not taste the goodness of God. 
Don't be satisfied to sit in a Christian culture, to sit around Christian stuff, to acknowledge that Christian stuff is true, but to forget to actually taste the goodness of the God who calls you his child. It's too easy. The thing that is going to compel you to the way of Jesus is believing in the depths of your heart that is better than any other way. To really believe that, you have to walk into it. He says, come, I know you're weary. I know you're burdened. I know you're sick. And I actually want to free you. And he offers that out to us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and kind and gracious. And I pray that you will apply the things to our hearts that you want applied. By the power of your spirit, will you change us? Will you call us to you in ways that compel us, that we might taste your goodness, know that you're good, and Lord, follow and walk the Jesus way. We pray in his name. Amen.